Uh, I got a message once from someone that said, I didn't know it was possible to be trans and be happy. James, I am so happy you're here. It only feels right considering you are one of the first people that ever believed in the conversationalist from the start. You so did. thank you so much you're for welcome. being here. I'm here to be a trendsetter. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Which you are, and I can't wait to talk all oh, about that. Thank you. That was my first time meeting you, actually, was that moment. And that's when I was like, I love you. Oh my gosh, well, I love you has too. Changed. <laughs> and I want to take us back to that first interview you ever did on the conversationalist. Oh I asked God. you the question in that studio. In in Soho, is a genderless future possible? Yes. And quoting you in that video, you said, I do not think that is possible in my lifetime. So now, three years later, I want to check in with you, starting with that question. Do you think a genderless future is possible? And should we be striving for a genderless future to begin with? I'm going to I'm gonna stand by what I said in my, what was it, 2020, 2019, 2019 <laughs> interview. Um, I don't think that with our current social structure, a genderless future is possible because I think that that would be at the expense of celebration. And so when I think about a genderless future, I think about one where we might have equality and equity amongst the different genders, but then it's kind of a it's kind of a mindfuck because gender itself is a social construct, right? Like we made it up as a way to reckon with the implications put upon us by our birth assignments, by the media, by family relationships, interpersonal relationships, you know, it's such a conglomeration of all of those things. And what is a society or a future without all of those things? Are we ever not gonna have influences in the media? Are we ever not gonna have relationships with other people? Are we ever not gonna have um, roles thrust upon us based off of the way our anatomy functions, based off of the way we see ourselves, based off the way other people see us. I don't think that's possible because that takes away a lot of the beauty and the diversity of people's individuality. And so to me, I don't think striving for a genderless future is interesting. I'm not interested in that because I have found gender as a concept to be liberating the more that I reckon with my own experience of it and the more that like when I sit in the privacy of my own room and think about what are the things about me that are special that I love that I wish everybody could understand or that I wish everyone could feel that way about themselves with a lot of it's gender-based and I don't think a genderless future yields that kind of celebration I do think that a future where we are treated equitably and equally and that we do celebrate all genders is possible. Will it happen in my lifetime? Gonna fucking try. I don't know. But I do think that that is possible. But genderless, I don't think so. Super interesting. Yeah. And where does that point of view come from? Where did your journey with gender identity truly begin? I can't pinpoint a moment where I wasn't thinking about it. Mm. You know, like in my memories as a human being, um, one of the earliest memories I have is being in kindergarten. And my teacher asked us to separate boys on this side of the room, girls on this side of the room. And I genuinely didn't know where to go. Mm. And it wasn't because I hadn't been conditioned to be a certain gender based off, you know, what was my assumed birth assignment. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid before kindergarten, I used to wear my mom's high heels and like wear shirts on my head and run around with like long hair. Now I'm like descending into my final form. Like I don't have to wear <laughs> shirts on my head anymore. Um, and those were things that were gendered based off society, but they were just true to me. You know, like I saw my mom as this very glamorous woman. She still is. Um, but I saw like her long hair and her heels. She's a teacher as so beautiful and glamorous. And then I saw like playing in the dirt with like GI Joes as like 
fun and cool too. And to me, those experiences weren't gendered until they were taught to me that they were gendered and boys did this and girls did this. And I was like, well, I want to play dress up and I want to play with trucks and trains. I don't understand why I'm limited to these things. And I guess that's when I started reckoning with it was when it was limited, you know, in terms of you go over here because you are this. And then I was told where to go. And I, I consider that one of the moments that really fractured the essence of the non-binary person inside of me because there was not space for that person. So then, you know, now we go, let's fast forward through like 15 years of oppression and hating trans people and thinking trans people were, you name a trope, I thought that about trans wow. people. I was like, transphobia 101, you came to me if you wanted trans, it wasn't that bad. But I definitely did not humanize trans people in any way. Which is ironic and like uncomfortable for me to be the stereotype of like you are a phobia because you are the thing because that's not always the case. Unfortunately for me, it was the case and I definitely harmed other trans people because I was not in a space where I was given the opportunity to reckon with myself, nor was I willing to, nor was I just willing to see other human beings as other human beings. I was alienating them and therefore alienating myself. And so I really started to reckon with it. I think during, I recovered from an eating disorder through college. And that's when I started really noticing some gendered experiences. Um, I was forced to sing specific types of repertoire, play specific types of roles. I went to musical theater school. I'm still an actor. Um, and those things fit sometimes, but they didn't fit the entirety of my experience. And I always wanted to play all of the genders. And it's not because I wanted to take up space that I didn't deserve necessarily. It was because I wanted to play things that were authentic extensions of who I was. But being pigeonholed into being a binary gender did not allow for that to happen. And so when I was recovering, I started navigating some more body image stuff and realizing that I was both trying to fit the ideal masculine and the ideal feminine images in society. Neither one of them were completely true to me. And because I navigate the world with so much thin privilege, it was very difficult to parse out what was my internalized anti-fat biases versus what was my internalized like transness that I hadn't reckoned with. And I had always wanted to try on like the ball gowns at department stores. And I finally did one day. It was very shaped form. And then it had this like mermaid golden ruffly thing. It's not my Instagram. You've seen the photo. photo. Yeah. Well, I looked at myself and I just whispered the words, they, them. And it all clicked. And I felt like I was looking at like my inner child, like who I had denied for so long. I, I literally felt like I was having a conversation with the person who used to wear shirts on their head and wear their mom's heels. But like, they had grown up and like weren't allowed to be that person. And then I was giving permission to start. And so the next day I like socially transitioned. It was like my pronouns are they, them. I'm figuring out what this means for me, but I know I need the support of everybody in my life in order to safely exist as who I am. And it's only gotten better and worse since. But now I really feel like I experience a fluidity between a lot of genders. I feel deeply connected to womanhood as a main informant to my gender, especially because I was denied it for so long. But now that I, you know, experience the world in this kind of fluidity, it's like, not to be so gay, but it's like feeling the rainbow all the time. It's like you just feel this giant spectrum and you can't even pinpoint it. It just feels like you are a part of all of it. And... So my gender journey didn't just stop with the gold dress. That's kind of what launched it. What a moment. What a moment, right? I feel right? like we were all there in that dressing room with you <laughs> just now. I know I yeah. was. It really seems like sometimes you just have to see yourself 
in a certain way to truly understand who you are. Yeah. And that must have been such a powerful moment. It was very powerful and very terrifying. And I think, you know, I've never phrased it this way. So I'm having an epiphany moment, I guess, right now. And that my work now feels like I want to bring everyone into that dressing room now. Mm -hmm. I want everyone to have a taste of what that feels like because it felt like stepping into my power and my authenticity. And I think everybody deserves that. And I think the version of our authenticity and our truth is often not what we think it's going to be. Because if I had, if, you know, if I were 10 years old or 15 years old and I saw me now, I'd be like, ew. And I see me now and I'm like, yeah, doing the thing, you know? And so oftentimes I think people are not afforded the opportunity to be in that metaphorical dressing room. And I want that for people because it is so special. And I constantly chase that now. You know, I get really specific about the interactions I want to have, the people I want to be around, the rooms I want to be in, because I want them to be an extension of the dressing room. There is... It is not safe to be a trans person in today's world. And I say this as a white trans person, I exist with a lot of privilege. And even for me, it is still not safe to be trans. And yet I still want to invite people into that moment because I think that that perspective changes you. I want to double tap on this dressing room (laughs) metaphor for a moment. I think your story of standing in that dressing room in the ball gown, I think also points out how it was just you in that moment discovering your identity. Yeah. And now, as you've risen to TikTok fame <laughs> since I first met you, I mean, That's 200 true. plus thousand people are now on this journey with you. The smiling crew. And it's amazing that you're inviting people into that dressing room with you. However, I'm sure it can come at a cost when now there are 200 plus thousand people with an opinion about your identity. Yeah. So what is it like and how do you reconcile mm. with different people having an opinion on who you are? It's so different because TikTok is new to me, right? I've only been on for like six months, you know, actually creating content on it. And Instagram was so different because I started to gain a platform on Instagram because I was writing about gender and recovering from trauma and recovering from my eating disorder and people specifically sought out my work because of that I think whereas on TikTok it's I started it as a finsta I just wanted a place where I didn't have to you know be in front of hundreds of thousands of people and ha that worked out and I love TikTok now and I kind of took the same pillars from my Instagram of like I want people to walk away from this page feeling like they either learned something or that they smiled or something brought them closer to joy um, or both And I hopefully am able to do that with my TikTok as well. And of the like 200 something thousand people that are there, they rock. Like it's a bunch of like badass queer people, majority queer people that love and celebrate and cherish trans people. And they come from all walks of life. I get to like meet them on the street now, you know, like I, every time I go to a Broadway show, someone's like, I follow you on TikTok and I'm like, oh my gosh, can I hug you? Like, what's your name? It's such a special moment of connection, right? It's like, that's what we want social media to be, an extension of who we are that allows us to deepen our relationship to humanity and each other. That's at least how I think it should be. So the community is wonderful, but because TikTok is chaos incarnate, just because you put something out there does not mean that it gets to the right audience. I have had my fair share pretty recently, actually, of just slews of hatred. And I ended up on um, a, a big conservative media person, much, much larger platformed than I am, Uh, did like a 10 minute breakdown of one of my videos, you know, with all the classic tropes that bear no need of repeating about trans people. 
I didn't watch the video because um, I respect myself enough now to not listen to hatred that I know is false and not fill my brain with that. And it would crush me, honestly, to hear. I mean, that's the truth is like no one is infallible and I would be crushed listening to somebody that size try to rip me apart as a human being. So I didn't. And my friends did. And apparently it's a lot about my genitals, which is like, if you're just obsessed with it, like join the club. Like there's a lot of boys in New York that hold the same opinions. Um, But it's not so much the issue of one person having the opinion. It's mobilizing this hatred and then tons of people coming into your space with hatred about you, which is so opposite of who I am. I am not above critiquing other people and I don't think I'm above critique at all. And yet I don't think it's helpful to go try to slander somebody as an individual. So I had like about a week where I didn't go outside too much because I was getting a lot of death threats. And it's almost unfortunately a rite of passage for trans creators to experience that. So many of the trans activists I know and love have gone through the same kind of cancellation, which is you can't cancel somebody from outside the community that they're in. Cancel culture doesn't exist. That's another story. But that sucks. And you know what sucks more? Trans people's rights being legislated away. Like the fact that in multiple states, trans people can't get access to affirming care. Trans people can't play sports. Like you can't fucking kick a ball around because of your gender identity. Like, do we hear how asinine this is, you know? And that to me is worse. And I have a good network. I am really, really lucky and have really tried to curate a safe group of people to be around that I lean on. So when that happens, I have safety in my own world and I can come back to the internet and hopefully make it a little bit safer for other trans people. I've never heard anybody who truly understands transness give a valid critique of trans. You know what I mean? Like none of those people really get it. Well, I appreciate you sharing that and I'm sorry that happened to you. Me too. Death threats. (laughs) I do not wish that it's not on fun. anyone. Especially when you realize you live in New York and these people could like, so, I mean, lives of TikTok, that whole thing just came out, right? Like she was one of the first people that like started that and thinking that she lives in Brooklyn and like, I get on the train. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like I could be sitting next to people that on the internet told me that they wanted to kill me. Absolutely. That's scary. You bring up a really interesting inner debate that I've been having here Mm. at The Conversationalist. We're constantly straddling this line between wanting to talk to people that may simply just be ignorant and may Mm -hmm. have grown up in an environment that didn't afford them the same education to understand gender identity outside of the binary. But at the same time, it can infringe on hate Mm -hmm. when someone doesn't understand someone's identity, like we're seeing with your story, you know, someone giving you death threats based on who you are. So how do you toe that line between wanting to invite people in and have those conversations while also knowing where to draw the line when it fringes on hate speech. I think it's about power dynamics and respect because I do, I agree with you. I think that everyone should be free to share their opinions. And I think that that is one of the assets to social media. And then of course, one of the also, you know, downfalls of it is, is how terrible it gets sometimes. To me, the issue is less about what people are saying. It's about the access to power they have when they say what they say. And You can find any opinion on the internet, right? You can find any identity, any opinion. It's all out there. You can find a community. And I think that the problem becomes when we perpetuate power dynamics that are represented politically, socially, et cetera, and then those play out on the internet. For example, when somebody who is a huge conservative media goes and tries to take down trans people individually, 
that is a microcosm for what is ha- not even a microcosm. That's a direct example of what's happening in terms of legislature is a bunch of people who are not only ignorant, but they are bigoted and they are holding values that dehumanize other people. That's the issue. So my question is less, I guess, about why do we need to do, it's not about censorship or sharing your opinion. It's about recognizing the power and the influence your opinion has on the lives of other people. For example, when I talk about trans rights, I'm not infringing on the lives of that conservative media person. They are sometimes able to twist it to think that that is true, but it's not because somebody living their most authentic life on the internet has nothing to do with you. But then when you're like, we should kill this person, that's very different. Absolutely. You know, so I don't think it's so much about what we say. I think it's about the access to power we have when we say it. And it's more about monitoring that. There may just be a little bit too much main character energy of people always thinking that someone else's story is about them. And a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And I have appreciated your content on TikTok so Thank much. You. I mean, from Instagram too, I've learned so much about gender identity and mental health Me and too. recovery from your content. <laughs> thank so you. Thank, you. thank you. And I noticed that in one of your videos, mm. you were explaining a little bit more about the labels that you use to identify yourself. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but James, you identify as non-binary and gender fluid and trans femme mm-hmm. and perhaps more. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about how you arrived at those terms and do you support traditional labels? Yeah, I love that question. Um, I support traditional labels if they set you free. And if they don't set you free, I don't support that for you. I support you feeling celebrated and feeling free to be who you are. I found that through labels because we exist in a society where human nature is to codify. We want to be able to look at that and go, okay, your pants are red. My shirt is purple. This couch is gray. We want to be able to codify and understand it's an element of safety, you know, like taking this all the way back into like our little reptilian brain when we're like, that's an antelope, that's a lion, that's an ant. Like, you know, safety, we got it. You know what I mean? Like that goes way, way, way back into our like Neanderthal days, essentially. And I think that that kind of plays into this a little bit in terms of the labeling because I feel safe when I can label something. And then I've kind of reckoned with that a little bit and been like, well, not everything fits in a box. And non-binary is like a big umbrella term for everybody who isn't on the binary spectrum of being a man or a woman exclusively, right? And so I have a theory that most of the world is actually pretty non-binary, but you know, I leave that to them to discover for themselves should they choose. And when that, when I got into that label, I was like, okay, cool. But when I found gender fluid, And it allowed me this expansion and um, ability to almost like shape shift in between them. I felt much more safe within that label. I think about gender instead of being a spectrum of like point A to point B and then everything in the middle. I think about it like a color wheel. Like if you picture a pinwheel of all the colors and to me, gender fluid feels like the breeze that like goes around the pinwheel and makes it spin. And then you get to enjoy every part of it. And to me, that is what I feel about gender. Other people are like, they want to stop the pinwheel and go, that color, that's me. I love it. And other people are like, don't fucking give me a pinwheel. You know what I mean? I respect it. I love it. So I think that labels can serve a great purpose. And I arrived at those labels because those were the things that felt like they set me free. And so I use transness as a label because I'm not what I was assigned at birth, which to me indicates a transition away from that, um, a transformation, a transness. 
And I use non-binary because I'm outside the binary of just being exclusively a man or a woman. I use trans femme because my transition was towards femininity, right? Like those were the parts of myself that I was embracing that I was denied earlier by myself, by society, by the world, etc. And I use gender fluid because I feel like it's, for me, it's the overall umbrella term that encapsulates all of that. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And hearing about, I love the pinwheel analogy. And Pretty good, right? Yeah, it's yeah. so good. <laughs> and thinking about your overall journey of understanding your own identity and mm -hmm. your gender identity, it seems like without going through that journey, you wouldn't have necessarily arrived where you are today had you not had that realization in the dressing room. Yeah. So my question for you is thinking back to younger James, do you wish that you had been taught about gender identity and pronouns and even sexuality in the classroom at a young age? Or do you think your younger self wouldn't have been ready for that? I have two answers to that. One is on a systemic level and one's on a personal level. On a personal level, I really don't waste too much time thinking about what do I wish I had learned because that wasn't what happened to me, you know? I would hesitate to say like, oh, like I had to go through all of that in order to understand who I am because I don't think we need to experience trauma in order to experience joy, right? And which is not what you said, but that is sometimes the sentiment people have of like, right. wow, it sucks that you went through that, but like, look how great you are now. And I'm like, I wish you could understand how awful it is to go through being gaslit, which I don't use lightly. I mean, that is truly what happens is the world gaslights you about who you're allowed to be as a trans person. I don't wish that on anyone. So that brings me to like my systemic answer is of course I wish I was taught about these things. I wish that I had positive queer representation in the media. I wish that my media representation of, tra uh, representation of trans people wasn't serial killers. I wish that it wasn't um, trans misogynistic tropes. I wish that it was wholesome. I wish that it was the things I see reflected in my own self. There's a brilliant woman named Christina Olson who runs the Trans Youth Project. I think it's out of Washington, Oregon, somewhere up there in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, what her studies have found is that children understand gender as early as 18 months old. They can understand gender, and the older they get from there, they start to understand the gender roles that are imposed on us. This is new. For a long time, we were dealing with the archaic science of the 60s that was like, everyone understands what it is to be a man from age of two. You know, like, that's not the truth anymore. And so, because we understand gender from such an early age, and we, even if we can't put words to it when you're 18 months old, it means that it's never too early to start learning about it because it's handed to us in, you know, think about Barbies versus G.I. Joes. Think about like boys wear blue, girls wear pink. What right. the fuck? I made a video recently about how kids misgender me less than anyone else do. Like, and I, I don't mean like young people that are preteens that are aware of what's going on in the world. I don't mean Gen Z. I mean like three years old, you know? especially when I'm wearing a mask and I'm, you know, a little bit more androgynous, which is fun for me. And they'll say, you know, mommy, you know, what are they? And I, you know, if I hear sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm a non-binary person, you know, and they're like, are you a boy or a girl? And I'm like, I'm neither. And they're like, okay, you know, that's it. And then they just want to go run in the dirt. Like they don't, they don't care. And so I think part of the issue is because we have cared so much as a society about shoving people into these codified boxes, we, we can absolutely be teaching young people about this, you know? We're taught about sexuality and we are taught about gender in society. Whether you realize it or not, we're just taught about heterosexuality and we're taught about being cisgender. 
because that's all the representation, that's all the narratives, that's all the power holders. What do you have to say to people that say, let kids be kids, we shouldn't even be talking about gender identity, period. You know, is there a certain age that you think we should start introducing gender identity, but there's a certain age where we shouldn't? No, I don't think so, because it's introduced already. From the moment you're born, babies get blue hats on them in a hospital. We're introducing gender from a super early age. So I think, I mean, uh, Parenting Beyond the Pink and Blue by Dr. Christia Spears-Brown goes into much better detail from a clinical perspective about this than like I can. I don't think it's ever too early because it's never too early to teach somebody how to be kind to someone else. And ultimately, exploring gender and sexuality is about being kind to yourself in a world that tells you you're not allowed to exist as queer. And so my question to them is, when is it too early to teach empathy and humanity? That is such an important point of view. And I'm so glad you shared that. Do you remember that moment before you first clicked post when you fully used your voice on the internet? And if so, what advice do you have to young people out there that are still struggling to fully be themselves online or offline? Mm. And how can someone start using their voice? I only had one social media for a very long time. I now only have two. Everything else is fake. I remember when the Me Too movement happened. Um, I talked about my first sexual assault at the time I had not had what ultimately for me ended up being the worst one. But at the time I had been assaulted by somebody in power. And uh, I spoke about that in solidarity with the Me Too movement. You know, very, very simple. Like this has happened to me. This has happened to a lot of other people I know. Um, I refused to live in shame about it, even though I, I felt so much internalized shame about it. I mean, that was one of the experiences that informed my gender too. And that's the really dark side of it is finding camaraderie in other women who had experienced sexual misconduct in the workplace. There weren't any men talking about being assaulted by people in power. There weren't many men involved in the Me Too movement. And so I found camaraderie and community with women and was able to tap into more of my femininity there. And I remember posting about that. And that started the journey of, uh, I have chronicled my healing from sexual assault for the last like four years. That was the moment I truly stepped into my power, I felt like, because to me, it was the most vulnerable part of myself that also turned into a universal experience, which is so fucked up, you know, that that was what um, so many people, I, I woke up to so many messages from people saying, in my real life, this was, I did not have a platform. I had like, 900 followers on Instagram that were my friends, right? And so many people were like, this happened to me as well, and I can't speak about it. But I think it's important that you don't share what is so deeply close to you until you are ready for that to be picked apart. And I was ready for it because I I just was. It's the kind of person I am. I see a glass ceiling and I go give me a hammer, you know? Um, because I know not everybody else can, and, and I want to champion that because... I know what it's like to look at it, as many of us do, and go, someone's got to throw a hammer. And I go, all right, I'll take the brunt of this, um, which is something I'm proud to do. And my advice would be that you don't have to. There are other people who are doing it for you, and we do it as an act of love. Um, because that that is the best way I know how to love other people who have been through what I've been through is to share that part of myself. And what I want people to know by seeing anything that I put on social media is that it is possible to live with these things and live with joy. Uh, I got a message once from someone that said, I didn't know it was possible to be trans and be happy. And that's what I want. And uh, your transness and happiness will look different than my transness and happiness will. So I would say, share when you're ready and know that there is a whole world of people that are ready to embrace you for 
wherever you want to be and wherever you want to share and whatever you don't. You know, your humanity is not defined by how public it is. And the reason that I put it out there is because I want, I don't want to be on the operation table, but I see the benefit of it. And I understand how lucky I am to be in the position that I am. It's my way of giving it back to people who may not have the same thing because it's what I fight for and what I want them to have. Thank you so much for sharing that and for being vulnerable even here, sharing your story. Thanks. I, I know you've been through so much and more than people should ever have to go through. And I'm just so grateful that you have been able to use your story to help other people feel less alone. And I'm sure receiving messages like that just make it all worth it. It does. For every, you know, hateful comment I get, I get someone that's like, I'm auditioning for my musical at my school and I'm trans and I'm like, good. Good. Yes. That's, that's what makes it worth it. You know, I, I really do it for my own inner child, but if my inner child and your inner child are holding hands on the journey, cool. Cool. And thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me and for holding space for all of this. I really appreciate I'm it. I'm so grateful. And even though I'm only one person, I <laughs> just hope you know how much you've taught me. Thank you. Every time I talk it out loud with you, I understand it a little bit better too. I mean, I had an epiphany moment today. That's the beauty of this, we never understand it all, but we're sure as hell going to try, right? Absolutely. And half the battle is starting, starting. the conversation. Starting. So thank you for doing that yeah. every day in the work that you do thank and also you. here on the couch. Thank you. So James, this is my favorite part of POVs where we're going to start bringing in other viewpoints from oh. our larger Gen Z community. Okay. So keep an eye on your phone. We're going to send you some texts. Okay. And I want you to read them out loud and react raw and unfiltered. Okay. Oh my gosh. I honestly think there are way too many gender options right now. Why can't people just pick one? Bitch, there's so much cereal too. Next. Like, are you kidding me? Like, wow, there's so many colors of clothes to wear. Why can't you just pick one? How boring would that be though? Like for real, if you think about it, like we all only eat Cheerios and we all only wear green. I hear you. What? What there's... do you have to say to people that think gender just is not a construct and gender is a binary? Your worldview may support that based off of your personal experiences, but that worldview isn't universal. And that's what's tricky about this, right? Is um, even if in your life you have only experienced a binary and you don't see gender as a construct, there are millions of people who do and who do experience specific gender-based oppression mm -hmm. that you may not. Oftentimes that point of view comes from people who have been fortunate to where they've never had to reckon with their gender identity. They have never had to sit in a dressing room and cry over the fact that like, they've denied who they were for 15 years because everybody said that they weren't allowed to be that person. It is kind of one of those where two truths can't simultaneously coexist because we can't have gender is not a construct and it's only a binary and we can't have gender is a social construct and it is not a binary because one does cancel out the other. And so the good news is, you get to keep your binary, but like just also recognize that there is so much more than just that, you know? It's back to the same colors. It's like, well, you can still wear green, but I'm gonna wear purple today. Like you can still wear green if you want to and you can eat Cheerios, but I wanna eat, insert other cereal here, you know? That's part of it. So your truth exists, but it is a small part of the whole truth. Mm. So you're just, you're looking at a tree and you're missing the forest. I think that's such an important thing for people yeah. to understand that truly just don't understand yeah. right. gender identity. Right. So thank you. Male privilege doesn't exist because privilege doesn't exist. Incorrect, actually. Say more. Uh, so 
being a man is to have the easiest course of gender in human history. <laughs> and it's because um, privilege functions within systems of power. It doesn't mean that you don't experience harm. It doesn't mean that your life isn't difficult in some ways. It just means that you exist with some unearned benefits. And it is advantages that you didn't accrue, you know, by your hard work or something like that. You accrued it by being born as a certain thing. And so when you're born as a man, the world is handed to you. And if you are a man, then the world is handed to you in a very different way than the world is tossed your direction if you're a woman, if you're a non-binary person, if you don't fit within the confines of, you know, being a man, right? So male privilege exists because men have access to systems of power over all other genders. And that is evidenced by our legal system, by our social systems, by the fact that men get to walk through the world largely unencumbered by most things involving gender. You know, this usually is an opinion held by men because they don't see the experience of other genders. It is a thing. And privilege, is, it's such an interesting uh, word to talk about now because I think it's crucially important because many of us, arguably all of us, have an unearned privilege in some way. And the point is that your privilege is unearned because it benefits you in a way that having something else would oppress you and would make your life much more difficult from a systemic and safety perspective, right? It's a great opportunity for men to look at this and go, well, male privilege is also what gave us toxic masculinity. You know, the idea is that men need to be stronger, smarter, fitter, provide for masculine, lots of muscles, etc. Like, who is that helping? Why are we telling men they can't cry? You know, like this idea of men always being on the top of society also came at a cost to men. You may not have reckoned with those things, but they do exist. And so like you may experience toxic masculinity as like a, you know, shitty part of being a man, but you still have privilege over everyone else. We need to normalize health at every size. Being healthy does not always mean being skinny. What do you think people don't get about health at every size? I think people don't get health. Health is not a moral obligation for any of us. I think people don't understand health, so therefore they don't understand a health at every size. You know, my question is always, what is health? What does it mean to be healthy? You know, there's your physical health, your emotional health, your spiritual health. Like, there's so much that goes into health, right? The idea that your physical body and what you look like defines your physical health has been disproven every which way you can possibly imagine. And the misnomer is that if you're thin, you're healthy. And the only, the only thing about being thin is that you just fit the media narrative standard of beauty. It doesn't mean that you're healthy, you know? They also don't get that health can't be a moral obligation for all people. Not everybody is well. People are chronically ill. People are mentally ill. Like, these are not things you can change just because you want someone to be healthy. Like, you can't fix that with a kale salad and a smoothie. Like, why are we shaming people for making choices that don't negatively impact you? You know what I mean? Like, I everyone gets uh, their own body and they get their own choices with that. And so if health is something you value, cool. In what ways might perpetuating ideals of health be harming other people mm. is my question on that. You can promote healthy behaviors, a healthy relationship with food. Um, I would even extend that to like a healthy relationship with who you are, a healthy relationship with your brain at any physical body size. It is not determinant by your size. I can't wait for a part two where we can <laughs> fully dive in yeah. to more around body image because I know you have so much to share, but I'm going to go check out your Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
The only people who should have opinions about someone else's identity is that person. Just like we shouldn't make comments on other people's bodies, we shouldn't comment on other people's identities, positive or negative. This what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is really fascinating. I very much agree with we shouldn't be commenting on other people's bodies because it's almost impossible to comment on someone's body without reinforcing an anti-fat trope, right? It's almost impossible to comment on something without... Uh, perpetuating diet culture. It's almost impossible to comment on somebody's body and know that they're going to be mentally safe enough to receive that. Like, mm, don't do it. You know, even if you're like, even saying something positive, like, oh my gosh, you look so great in that outfit versus I love your outfit. Really different, right? You know what I mean? The connotation is, well, that you look like shit in all your other outfits first off, and that somehow this outfit does something to you that fits what? What does good mean there? You know what I mean? As opposed to like, I just love your pants, you know? Really different, right? In part, I agree with the identity thing because when you're commenting on someone else's identity, you're therefore commenting on their lived experiences, which you don't have. You may have similar ones because you may have a parallel identity, but you don't have their lived experiences. So commenting on it gets tricky because you can, I think it's important to be in solidarity with other people. I think that it is important to uplift them for their identities. I think it's important to notice them, especially when that's really important to that person. You know, everyone has a different relationship to their identities. And as the people that interact with them, it's our job to nurture those in whatever way they want. And some people welcome it. They're like, yeah, I love talking about my identity and I want to comment on it. Me. Um, other people are like, it's not your place. Don't talk about that. I think that's much more individualistic. Um, but your opinion on someone's identity is unearned. You know, when we go down to it, uh, your opinion on somebody's identity can never match up with their lived experiences because you haven't lived as them. Oftentimes, that's the kind of rhetoric that's used to gaslight trans people about being trans. It's like, well, my opinion is that trans people don't exist. And it's like, well, you do see me and hear me, so I do exist, you know what I mean? Like that, you can't really get around that one. Whether you think I should exist, now that is an opinion, and that holds a lot of weight. And I think that's what we have to reckon with. And are you able to be friends with people or have conversations with people that genuinely believe that? When I'm paid. It's laborious. I can't do that for free as much anymore because it's so taxing. I'm constantly on the defense, you know? like. The idea that, okay, well, if somebody's out there and is public, so therefore I get to attack them for this thing I don't agree with. And it's like, well, that costs a lot to that person oftentimes to put forth the labor to constantly be on the defense about the fact that they should exist to begin with, you know? So I can have conversations with my queer and trans friends where we deepen our understanding about gender. Socially, I am uninterested in defending my gender to anyone. When I am being paid as a consultant to go in somewhere, I'm being honored for my time. You know what I mean? That's different. That is an educational opportunity to begin with. But, Absolutely. you know, the social setting where someone just keeps misgendering me, go somewhere else. Right. There are plenty of people that are going to love who I am. And I respect that so yeah. much. If a female transgender athlete competes on a woman's team, then they will have the advantage because of their natural male genetic makeup. Make it make sense. So there, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, it's definitely the spiciest oh. one. Yeah, it's a spicy one. Trans women are women, right? Trans men are men. Trans is an adjective. It's not like a new type of gender. It is to say, that's a tall woman. That's a short woman. That's a black woman. Uh, that's a woman I used to know. That's a trans woman. Adjectives. My point is that you wouldn't discredit um, an athlete for being short. In fact, that might be to her advantage. You know what I mean? So if a transgender woman 
is competing on a women's team. She's on the correct team because she's a woman, just in the way that the blonde woman is on the correct team because she's blonde. The whole thing about sports is you do have a genetic advantage over other people. It's a competition of ability, right? And so you're going to find somebody like stronger, faster, you know, whatever the deal is, whatever you're competing in. And they're always going to, it's going to happen. That's the nature of the sport, right? The misconception is that people who were assigned something at birth are at somehow an advantage. And the scientific truth behind it is after about a year being on hormone replacement therapy, you lose any sort of like testosterone buildup that would have been able to advance your physical skill set in a way that would put you at a higher level of competition. We're not seeing that at the mainstream level, you know, so it's actually not unfair at all. Within cis women, there are varying degrees of hormone composition, of strength, of heights, of build, of endurance, of stamina. And so all these cis women are competing against each other for that. And then you just added in a few more that just have been, they have a slightly different version of how they got to womanhood, but they're all still women and they all still have similar hormonal compositions, right? Because if a trans woman has been transitioning for that period of time, she's going to, you know, on a, on a set of tests, she's going to perform the same in terms of like what her genetic advantage would be. So I saw this tweet the other day and it was like, it's just so disappointing to see after years of working so hard that like someone with a genetic advantage, meaning trans women, can just beat you out. And I was like, bro, do you not understand? That's what happens every time. Somebody, some other woman with a genetic advantage over you beats you out every time. That's how sports go. Mm -hmm. So not only is it like you're just forgetting the nature of the sport, you're also not understanding the science behind it. And I think that's a big misconception. People don't understand hormone replacement therapy. And that's a good thing to Google. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. that. I think it's something that not enough people know about. Yeah. And Google's a great place yeah. to go. And in terms of legality, like what we're legislating right now is not trans athletes at the highest level. We're legislating kids not being able to play sports. That's what's so asinine. Like... Your ch everyone's at different stages of development. The most unfair competitions might be middle school sports when like you never know when you're going to hit puberty. And so then you get, you know, you get a swimmer who happened to go through puberty at age 10 and she's taller than everyone and she can swim faster versus the other person who, you know, hasn't hit puberty yet and they're shorter. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's so many things that go into it. Like Absolutely. why are we're it's just illuminating that we're uninterested in letting trans people exist because for every trans person, the exceptions that we try to alienate trans people with, there's always a cis person that falls into that exceptionality mm -hmm. too. And I think what you shared about adjectives really helped enlighten me. I feel like that just broke my echo chamber. Oh, did it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, Adjective. it's something we should all remember. Non-binary and queer characters in TV and film and on Broadway should only be played by non-binary people, period. We should cancel people like Lauren Patton from Jagged Little Pill. Did I write this? Did I send this text? Um, and who? for people who don't know the oh, Broadway world, I, I mean, I'm yeah, a Broadway Yeah, we're like Broadway nerds, so you know. Okay. Tell people so, more. So, Jagged Little Pill was a musical on Broadway where a character was originally written to be non-binary. It was cast as a cis person playing a non-binary role. Number one, inappropriate. Then they rewrote it when it came to Broadway and they erased the transness of this character and they made her a bisexual woman instead. Still played by a cis person. Cis people playing bisexual people? Cool. I think bisexual people should play bisexual people because there's a level of authenticity there that straight people can't tap into. In theater, I can think of 
you could probably count on both hands the amount of times a trans person has been on a Broadway stage and even less times that a story has revolved around transness and even less times that a story has been responsibly told about transness. Mm. Right now- I know you've talked a lot about Mrs. Dalton oh, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because a lot of them fall into trans misogynistic tropes or they fall into misnomers and they just do a lot of harm because they reinforce um, dangerous ideas about trans people that are untrue mm -hmm. and that discredit the core of our identities, right? Canceling Lauren Patton? No. Holding Lauren Patton accountable for what she has done and the harm she's caused the trans community? Absolutely. And by extension, holding the producers accountable. There's been a lot of media about this by the folks that were harmed in Jagged Little Pill. Do you and think she should give back her Tony? Absolutely. And I think the Tony Awards should come out and say that they made a mistake because they have multiple years in a row, we're looking at Santino Fontana winning for playing a transphobic you know, trope, and we're looking at Lauren Patton winning for playing somebody that she shouldn't have even auditioned for to begin with. You know, um, I think that she had a terrible press tour in terms of like trying to clean it up and every trans person was like, we see right through this, you are harming us. You are co-opting our narrative as your own. She should not have been playing the role to begin with. Mm. And the reason I say that is because when we have such limited representation of transness and gender nonconformity, we should default to the people who can do it authentically. I am an actor. I love playing things that are different from me. I love tapping into experiences that I don't necessarily have, but can honestly portray on stage. Right now, we're not at a place where we have equal representation across the board of trans people having ownership of their own narratives. So there's no space for cis people to come in and do that. And when we're making a show that specifically wants to talk about transness, it must then be helmed by trans people who can tell it responsibly. It must then be told by trans people who can tell it responsibly. And until we have any equitable representation across the board on Broadway, on TV, in film, there's no space for other people to take that space they haven't earned. Do you feel the opposite as well? That people who are non-binary should not be playing binary roles? That's usually the second question people have, and I don't think so. Because look at the limited, name me five non-binary people on Broadway. Mm, I don't think I could. There are not opportunities for us to authentically play ourselves. So when they come about, they have to default to us, right? But the only way to get on Broadway sometimes is by playing a cis person. And so when you're going in that direction, it's like in comedy, we talk about punching up. Like when, you, when you're making a joke, you wanna make sure that you're making fun of somebody who has more power than you, who exists at you know a level of privilege above you. Um, and so that way you aren't causing harm with it. You know, when women play men and make fun of men, it's very different than when men make fun of women, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's really difficult to divorce misogyny from that as opposed to women playing men and then commenting on all the, all the things that oppress them. That's actually empowering. Men are not oppressed by women, like on a systemic scale. So like when men co-opt femininity as in Doubtfire, as in Tootsie, things like that, then it does perpetuate this misogynistic oppression. So I don't think the reverse should be true because there are no opportunities for us. So I am open to cis people playing trans roles once we have equitable representation across the board. And I hope we can hope see we that can future one day. <laughs> Back to the genderless future, yeah. Absolutely, like we're making a full circle. But James, yeah. my last question for you today, yeah. I feel like we've talked about so many things, but throughout Throughout it all, it was really all tied back to your story. In your own words, James, what does unifying the world mean to you? And what does a unified world look like to you? Mm. To be unifying is 
celebrating with nuance. Mm-hmm. I think it is holding space for other people's humanity and committing to their safety. I think that it is extending empathy and compassion. I do think in many ways it requires having conversations. And so quite frankly, I think unifying means abolishing those systems first, because the only way we move forward is tearing down and rebuilding. You know, I think that we've got to start from scratch. And I think that we have, it's so rotted from its core in so many ways. And maybe it's because I am somewhat cynical from where I sit in it, but I feel like it is mostly rotted at the core and we've got to chop it down and restart. Yeah, or even build a new garden. Build a new garden, yeah. I really do think so. But I do think it starts by extending humanity to the person next to you and extending grace and compassion. And um, I mean, if you listen to abolitionist organizers, it's what they talk about. Like abolition is a daily practice. It's not just a practice of, you know, abolishing the racist police state. It's a practice also, Miriam Kaba talks about this. It's a practice of abolishing the cop within ourself and the way that we treat other people, right? You know, we can directly apply that to gender. Why are we policing other people's genders? Why are the, you know, why are we questioning other people's identities in that way? As opposed to going, what's special that they live like that? What can I learn from that? But I think unification and abolition kind of go hand in hand in that when we tear down those structures within ourselves and within our individual communities, that has a trickle and a ripple effect and that expands out. But I do think that it starts within intercommunity. And I think that we build the world that we want to see around ourselves first and we see what follows we gotta pay it forward we have yeah. to make other people feel safe yeah i do think that unity is about safety because that's so much of the issue with any you know theoretical space is people's safety and um also acknowledging that not every space can be safe for every person there are too many contradictions and too many truths that can't coexist safely together mm-hmm but can coexist. That was such a beautiful answer. I think unity is about (laughs) learning how to coexist and understanding that maybe that beautiful idea of unification won't exist in every space, but we can strive for it. We're never going to get unity as like, and we all agreed. We can't even decide where to go to brunch as a friend group. Like, you know (laughs) what I mean? Like we can't. But we can learn a little bit more from each other's experiences and stories and opinions and perspectives. And Mm -hmm. I learned so much from you today. So James, thank you you so much for being here, for (laughs) being on POVs. Thanks for having me on POVs. I can't wait to see where you go next. Thank you. Thank you.